0: Most of you were at Mass this morning and heard Father's homily. (coughs) (laughs) On Monday, um, he took as the inspiration for his homily, if you can call it that, the the shooting in, I've forgotten the name. Southern Southern Springs um, and reflected on it for a moment and I want to, what I'd like to do is pick up with both homilies on Monday and today as a way of getting to what we're doing because what I'd like to do is give you this sort of larger overview to, to put into perspective exactly what's going on in our world because it's it, it just seems so violent. On Monday he he was reflecting on the commentary, the comments that were made by people in response to the shooting in Texas. And he was was taken by the fact that so many of the people who were responding were instinctively turning to the government for answers, as if the answer would be another kind of law, as if another law would take care of the problem. He didn't talk about gun laws. I'm assuming that was on his mind. I don't know but he was emphatic in saying he didn't believe the answer was another law, and twice he said that the law wasn't. Father's a a libertarian, I have a strong libertarian streak in myself, but um, he was adamant in believing the answer wasn't law, and he underlined that twice and even repeated it again at the end. At the core of his homily was the example that he used from Hobbes' Leviathan. I'm going to come to Hobbes in a minute. Hobbes is one of the first social contract theorists of the modern world, and basically what he argued is that um, man exists in a state of war, naturally, and the only way that he can come out of it is by turning over all of his powers to the government. and um, father comment was wonderfully incisive. He said, Hobbes' assumption about the nature of man is that man's fundamentally evil, he's depraved. It's a very modern view. What sense does it make, if man is evil, to turn absolute powers over to the government when government's made up of men? Good, yeah, right. Um, Because, by the way, I, I don't know that any of you are aware of that, but." We think of ourselves as having a democracy. We do. But the nature of the modern democracy, in lots of ways, is totalitarian. Its powers are too large. So, Father's um, guardedness about laws to me is right on. Another law is not going to do it. Turning more power over to the government isn't going to do it. I went and saw him afterwards because a little bit concerned about his take on law, um, and I want to come to that in a minute. I don't think the answer is making another law, but the answer isn't to do away with law either, because we're living in a very lawless time. And I, I want to try to make clear why that's so in a second. Today he was talking about Pope Leo's contributions to starting the church. Those of you who did Dante remember the handout I gave you. One of the handouts began with this paragraph on Leo when he negotiated with the barbarians of the gates because the emperor had fled. That's the beginning of the confusion of powers because Pope Leo as the representative of the church comes in to negotiate a civic treaty. That's where church and state come together in a confused way or, or one of the major stages of that confusion. But there's no question about how important his contributions were. Father ended his homily today saying you know there's no comparison between what's going on in grapevine today and fourth, fifth century Rome. There isn't, but I want, I want to make this statement. Um, in some ways, this is, I know this, I may be putting my neck on the chopping block here. In some ways uh, there's not a question that we are materially better off than people were in 4th, 5th century Rome. The the question that I have is whether or not things are, as a matter of fact, worse for us. I don't think Father would disagree with me on that. I don't know, but there's there's one way in which we we can wonder whether or not we're worse off because we live under the illusion that we're better. And all the works that we've been reading are Destroying those illusions. I mean, they're, they're, they're unmasking these dark disorders in the modern world. So if you, if you think about the human person in the modern world and you enter into a spiritual psyche, it seems to me there's good reason for wondering whether things are not worse, I'm at far, far worse in our age than they were then. And one of the reasons, it seems to me, we t- that's something we should take seriously is this. Fourth, um, fifth century was still a relatively new Christian world under Pope Leo. We live in a world in which God has come. A whole Christian c- civilization um, grew out of his coming. We've now passed that, so we live in a world in which we've rejected God. That wasn't quite so for Pope Leo's Rome. So um, we're we're trying to build a civilization by denying God, by rejecting him. That wasn't true in the 4th century. It wasn't true, true for the whole Middle Ages. It wasn't even true for the last couple of centuries. But increasingly, since 17th, 18th, 19th century, we are trying to be a civilization who can exist once God has come and we've denied him. So... When we make comparisons with 4th or 5th century Rome, it seems to me one of the things we ought to be asking is, are we really better off? Materially, clearly we are. Um, Are we living under illusions that make what we're doing even worse? Think about the abortion count and all the other disorders. Um, Father didn't go into any of them today, but it seems to me it's just impossible to listen to the news today. All of, all of what the church considers disorders, abortion, homosexual marriages, euthanasia, um, um, genetic control, um, all of the sex scandals that are turning up right now, the, the, the divisions between the races have deepened. The tendency of political parties um, to engage in what I'm going to call witch hunts, that people go after people to ruin their lives when evidence isn't in on cases. I mean, there's lots of sex scandals and accusations going on. It's always been important in our country, it's it's been an established (coughs) principle of, of our civilized character, that nobody be presumed to be guilty until there's evidence to show he is, that everybody's presumed to be innocent. We live in a climate in which everybody is being accused, or so many people are being accused, and it's assumed immediately that they're guilty. Because we hate the sins they're being accused of and are ready to believe they were committed. So we we've got we live in this attitude in which people believe what they want to believe and don't believe what they don't want to believe before evidence is in. So culturally we're in a in a bad bad way. So I want to try to put this Linda's not going to forgive me after this class because this is just adding to.
1: Um, I may not
0: her experience. Her experience of Flannery <laughs> O'Connor. Okay, so um, I I I I think if we're going to make comparisons between fourth and fifth century Roman America, we've got to be very careful in what we're doing. Um, cultures historically are always much darker when you begin looking into them, whether it was 4th or 5th century or our time. Okay, <clears throat> modernity. Um, almost all of this will go to the misfit and what happens in Heart of the Park when Enoch takes Hazel to the heart of the park and what he shows him is this shrunken figure. Now, what, what does that shrunken figure represent for Flannery O'Connor? And how are we to understand the misfit when, when he makes it clear that he's a seeker, he wants to know things. He's, he's one of the few seekers in all of the O'Connor stories that we're reading. He has a clear understanding of Christ, in some ways clearer than the grandmother, even though she claims to be a Christian. And then it's interesting, towards the end, when, when things unsettle for her, she denies Christ. And she said, she's I mean, think about this. Aren't there times for any of us when we begin to question whether or not I mean, I think that's not uncommon for most of us to question whether or not there's a God or an afterlife or if he's real or. So, all of this will go to the major figures in O'Connor's story, but I want to lay this out. Modernity begins with the Copernican Revolution um, largely because a scientific way of looking at the world replaces basically a philosophic and mythic view. Christian Middle Ages. So that's a, that's roughly about the time of Luther and Calvin. Luther existed in the 16th century. He posts his 95 theses on the gates of Wittenberg in 1517. This year is the anniversary year of the Reformation. I think most of you know that, so um, we're looking back to that time and what it's meant. Um, Calvin um, lived roughly during the same period, the two met a number of times and disagreed on fundamental points. The the principles that they had in common, that they shared, um, were a belief in the depravity of man, the depravity of man, and a fundamental change in the understanding of the sacraments. We went through this when we did Moby Dick. Luther believed in consubstantiation, not transubstantiation, Remember, didn't believe in sacraments at all. So we're already moving towards a a religious way of life that is no longer sacramental or opens on mystery, okay? Um, What enters the world during the Reformation is a view of man that is absolutely negative. Both men believe that the fall was complete in its consequences. That's absolutely fundamental to see. That when man fell, he became depraved in essence. In essence. The Catholic Church has always maintained that when man fell, he was wounded, his essence remained intact. Okay? But there's a fundamental goodness that God um, gave man when he created him that was wounded but could not be radically changed, changed in essence. You can't change in essence in something. So this view of man's depravity enters the world here. It's interesting how much it carries over in the philosophies of the time. Hobbes wrote the Leviathan, that's the book that Father mentioned, and in the Leviathan he makes this argument um, that the only way we can avoid the the war, the the fighting that we're given to, is by turning over the powers to a government, giving the government absolute power so that they can settle disputes. He believed in the depravity of man. Response that I thought was wonderful was that if man's basically evil and you give government total powers, but government's made up of men, how are you going to answer the problem? I mean, so the social contract basically is a belief that all these men shared this theory that um, we live in a state of nature. At the state of nature, we are at war with each other. What motivates us is an instinct for self preservation. That this basic selfishness. That we want to protect ourselves to, um, to survive the threats from another person. And the only way to come out of that state of nature is to form a social contract. And the nature of that contract is, the spirit of it is, I won't do this if you don't do this. So it's a, it, and this is, this is the important thing. I want to, I mean, this is the, at the heart of it. It's a convention it's not it's its presumption is that we're at a state of war in nature that we're depraved so we have to make this contract it's an arbitrary it's a convention it's man made because if we're left at a state of nature we will kill each other we're like savages that's the modern view and we've seen it remember when we looked at hemingway with McComber, um, the rivalry between the husband and wife and the predatory nature of man, wanting to pursue to hunt another, and that's carried through in all of them. It's here in the misfit with um, with a grandmother. You know that um, they're going to kill people if, if there's no God. I mean, that's what the misfit says. And there's no reason not to go around killing people. Be- what, what's to stop us? There's nothing in nature that says otherwise. So we've been living under a social contract theory. It informs the way we look at government. Government in the modern world, this is the most important thing, government in the modern world is a convention. It's man-made. There's no longer anything in nature to which we can refer as a guide. So what determines justice is those in power, whoever worked those conventions. I should have added, I I just realized, I should have added, Machiavelli contributes to this because Machiavelli says that the end justifies the mean. The end for Machiavelli is the peace of the prince. He can do whatever he needs to do to maintain order. So if you look at most modern films, if you read most modern novels that deal with government issues, the government's almost always corrupt. The decisions they make are Machiavellian. The end justifies the mean. They can extinguish people, exterminate people, get rid of people who are in the way, because they're doing it for the larger good. In the world of St. Thomas, That would be an outrage because every man is made in the image of God. No man is extinguishable. I mean, you may have to punish them for evil, but you can't justify killing them because you're trying to, you know. um, So two different worldviews, one Christian, one modern, are absolutely in conflict, radically in conflict with each other. Darwin... um, writes the origin of the species in the middle of the 19th century and by by the 1870s so this is a century away from us by the 1870s it's, under, it's accepted by the whole scientific community that his theory is fact. Okay? At the at the root of that theory of the evolution of the species is the belief that the fittest will survive. It's the survival of the fittest. So those people who work harder to get ahead can justify leaving others behind. Because evolution <coughs> means the, the fittest will survive, the ones who are most adaptable. So all sorts of um, social Darwinist theories began to float then. That forms of government um, justified getting rid of deformed children or justified getting rid of certain kind of infants or children or people with certain behavior problems because clearly they, they weren't going to survive in a world of evolution. Freud um, writes his, um, his books on dreams <coughs> and on the unconscious mid 20th century. Um, Freud maintained that man did not have free will, doesn't have free will, he's governed by certain determinisms the root, the root determinisms for him was an et, were an edible complex, that there's this rivalry between the son and the father then the son and the mother um, that's potentially fatal, and what he called polymorphous perverse, that at, at the root of man's nature are these perverse sexual instincts and they govern what he does. Freud's answer to those problems was Gnostic, it was enlightenment to know them, None of these men, none of them, take them, take them to a core, beginning with Luther all the way through. None of these men had a view of man as capable of being virtuous or blessed or happy. You got all these determinisms, um, and and at the root of them is the is the belief that the intellect, the mind, can analyze these problems and do something about them. But what I mean what's the ultimate good for Freud? Or Darwin? I mean, in an evolutionary world you don't know because we don't know what the end product is going to be. Um, So when you put all of these people together, because these are the ones that really shape the thinking of certainly the the educated people in the West, um, we're left with a really dark view of man. So if we go into, into Heart of the Park, at the center of the park, remember, it's a return to the garden, symbolically. When you enter the zoo, there are those two trees. Enoch was the founder of the first city. To enter that park is to enter what the modern world uses to, to answer the garden longing, to create this park. At the center of it is a museum, and at the center of the museum is the shrunken pygmy. And it's interesting. It, um, Suzanne said this on the way home when we were... Um, I, I can't remember if we said this at the end of the last class, but... Um, <clears throat> remember Hazel, the man that Enoch meets? Remember he, mm-hmm. remember he has to go through this ritual, it, and I, I think we talk, I made this suggestion that... What O'Connor is showing us is that in the absence of God and, and solemn rituals, the Mass, are, man will create his own rituals. He has to have something to give his life order. So Enoch goes through this ritual every day. Every single day, he does the same thing. Today, we call them habits or you know, get the morning newspaper, have our cup of coffee. I mean, we cannot, we cannot vary those habits. It's like they give us an order in, the, in a world in which no order exists. Upset that order? I, I think I was laughing with you guys. We've, been, we've had five children and our, our youngest son and his wife at our house for...
2: <laughs> <laughs> Order <like> stability
0: <laughs> god oh god it's actually it's been a really interesting struggle for me i mean to 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 live in the midst of this chaos after i mean we live pretty you know sort to watch myself respond to a Peter on the water God <laughs> anyway um in that book we we saw um Enoch, waiting for the right person to come. Like a signature calling, it's something magical or sacred was about to happen. And the right person had to be there. So when Hazel comes along, he thinks it's the right person. It has all the, all the elements of a calling, of a sacred moment that we get in scripture. He takes him to the, to the case with the shrunken um, pygmy. Before they get there, remember when they're at the restaurant, Hazel says to the woman who's trying to flirt with him, she's so disgusted, and then when Hazel responds the way he does, she turns on him. Um, But before that he says, I ain't clean, I ain't clean. He's the only figure that I can recall in these stories that acknowledges there's something wrong with him. And it's Hazel who responds as violently as he does to the pygmy as if he's the only one to see the significance of what that is because he has that sense of a fall within himself Um, so now is the answer to this modern view, that there's nothing inherently good, no natural law in the world. Because according to these thinkers, natural law, reason, which is the basis of law, are virtually non-existent or corrupted. They all have a view that reason is corrupted. It's depraved. That Luther shared that view. Calvin did. It's only with God's grace that man can come out of it. Um, I want to set this modern view against the classical view that that we inherited and that we built on as a Christian people. Because the ancient people had a sense of natural law. One of my concerns, serious concerns as a person living in our time, is is that the natural law tradition should be um, second nature to a Catholic because it partly defines the Catholic world. It's one of the things that sets the Catholic world off from the Protestant world. The belief in natural law, the belief in the inherent goodness of reason. Take away law, it's it's why I was a little bit concerned on Monday with that. Take away law, and you take away our connection to the source of law, which is ultimately God. God's reason is the source of all reason for us. Um, Cut Take, undermine the source of reason and you undermine in, in a major way, fundamental way, natural way, traditionally, what has been the source of law in a family, in the husband. Take that away <laughs> and it's gone. I mean, you've undermined it. The killing took place in a, Baptist fam- in a Baptist community. So many of these killings have. There's no head in the Baptist communities. They're autonomous. They're, they're um, Their authority is in themselves, I mean, whatever goes on in them. Um, What's the natural law tradition? Oh, I forgot. Can anybody anybody take um, a scan, which I think it's converted to a PDF file, and convert it to a Word? Because I handed this sheet out, but I don't have it on a Word file. I wanted to get it back to you guys. Nobody can do it in. Can you? Can you can you get it to a word file? I can okay. <laughs> if you could do that, Lois, I'd be really grateful. I couldn't. I could come. I gave you guys a copy of that one we did Dante, but the natural law tradition is this. According to the natural law tradition, that preceded the Catholic world. It was the basis of reason in nature. According to that tradition, all positive law. Human law, civic law, has its roots in divine law, in scripture, and ultimately in God. Okay? One of the earliest examples we have, is that clear? So, for example, there's no way in which we could have gone to war over slavery if we didn't believe slavery was against the law. So, for a long time, slavery was protected by the law. We believe that there are certain disorders today that have the protection of law. If that's true, they're going against reason, which means they're ultimately going against God. right? I mean, that was true for slavery. I mean, it's a serious question. what's going to homosexuality is a, is a much more complicated thing. Um, I don't want to go there, but I mean we, they're disorders that have the protections of law. And the serious question is, when they do, how long can they exist without creating massive problems because they're ultimately against God? So, one of the earliest examples we have of natural law is in Sophocles' Antigone. It's one of the plays in the Oedipus cycle. Oedipus rex, Antigone, and Oedipus of Colonus. Antigone's brother rebelled against Creon, the king, in Thebes, and she wanted to give him a burial. Creon, who is a tyrant, refused it. In her response to him, she makes this appeal to the eternal laws of the gods. What she's doing is, is um, arguing on the belief that the tie be- between family members, the pieties, the fraternal friendship, the love, the bonds of love between family members is greater, higher than civic law and that her, her wanting to bury her brother was a proper response. She, she is treated as an outcast and punished. Actually, she'll die in that place. It's a tragedy. But her appeal to the <coughs> eternal law is one of the earliest examples we have of natural law. What she wanted to do was in accord with the laws of God. Every one of the epics we read, the Iliad, <coughs> the Odyssey, the, Inia, the Divine Comedy, all recognize that divine law. It's when men go against that law that problems are created. Plato's Republic, the Phaedo, and the Apology um, all give us some sense that man has a nature. And if he does, it's lawful to be in accord with it, to be one with it. In whatever way he's, he acts against that nature, he's, he's acting against reason, against law. Um, remember in the Republic, one of the fundamental things we learn about the Republic is. We, we went through this, I don't know that I should do this again, but remember there's an order to the soul. The soul has two faculties, a rational faculty and an appetitive. <coughs> and the appetitive has two kinds. One is noble, gives rise to anger, fumus. Anger is the rectificatory virtue, it rectifies things. The, the, uh, the lower appetite is towards physical things, body, food, drinking, sex. He gives the example to, to show scientifically that this is the way it is. That A, a person's um, crossing a desert and he's dying from thirst. He comes across a pond of water and he sees a sign that says poison. What does he do? His, he longs for the water to save his life He knows that if he drinks it, he could die. So he shows that the soul is in conflict with itself. The rational and appetitive are at odds. The great problem for Plato, as you know, is, is to how to bring the soul into its proper order, where the reason rules the appetites in the way that they should. And that means two different kinds of appetites, which take two different ways of rule. Um, Plato said in the Republic that the most important thing a man could do was mind his own business. We've done this. The the important thing is not to go around trying to correct everybody the way Socrates' interlocutors did, but to correct yourself, to make yourself a good person, to learn to order your own soul. Because you would never be able to be just with another person if you didn't make yourself just. And, And we all know how hard that was. Every time Socrates questioned somebody, they got angry with him and they finally killed him because everybody wanted to believe what they were doing was okay. So the fundamental things we got out of the classical world was mind your own business, that the first order of business is for us to become better people because if we didn't do that, we wouldn't be able to bring justice to what we did with other people. That was one. Second, we learn from the apology when he's taken to jail and is going to be executed that um, he was told he was the wisest man of all the men in the world. People resented that and Socrates knew that he wasn't the wisest man. So that what the gods meant when they said that he was the wisest, is, he had to be the wisest only because he knew he didn't know everything. Remember the way out of the cave? was to begin to ask questions, to wonder who I am. Um, and Is what I'm doing just? What's the nature of the soul? All those things to become a better person. So mind your business, know yourself, know yourself. And in the Phaedo, um, where he's in jail, he makes an argument for the immortality of the soul. It's a rational argument, it's wonderful he makes an argument showing the soul is immortal and since it is it's important for man to be good and one of the principles that he draws from that argument is this it's better for a man to suffer wrong before he causes wrong to somebody else now this is before Christ and these, these, are, these are arguments based on natural reason not faith So there is this law, there's this law to our, to us as humans, we have a nature, there's a law. It's important to pay attention to us, so we saw that in the Odyssey, the I in mean, all the books that we've read. Um, we have a nature, it's, it's important to know ourselves, it's important to mind our own business, to make ourselves better, so that what we bring to the world will be better. Um, and it's better to suffer an injury before we give it. Those were all rationally demonstrated arguments, okay. The basis of Aristotle's work, I mean, in so far as it applies to the human being, is that virtue is possible, that virtue is a means between two extremes. Now think about that, because I've thought a lot about that. I, I'm, I'm gonna make a jump here for a second. That means the mean is different for every person, because every person is different. Some people are naturally brave, some people are naturally timid, some are more appetitive, they want more so. you know, If you're a parent raising kids, you've got to learn to see the nature of that child and bring him to a norm. What would be virtue for him, because it would be different for him than... How many parents grow up today with any sense of that in the modern world? you know, that the problems you've got with each child is different, you've gotta do something. What that asks of a parent in the way of understanding and in their own actions, because it means they have to learn to get rid of themselves to be able to do different things with a different child. Not just line them up and say, line up um, as if that were going to do it. It's interesting when you think about that mean this, by the way, remember Odysseus was that mean. Wherever he went, he made people aware of their extremes. He brought suffering wherever he went. So Plato and Aristotle got this from the poets. Always, always. Um, it's interesting to think about that mean because in some sense, it's that obscure, hardest place to get to. And in some ways, it seems to me, it anticipates Christ he was the epitome of virtue. I mean, there's nothing he did that wasn't virtuous. He didn't give in to excesses anywhere. When he got angry it was because it was a righteous anger. He had to. Um, And he was obedient to his father's way, his father's law. He was reason itself. Wisdom, the wisdom of the father being brought into the world. So, if you compare the modern world and the social contract Theorists. with the ancient world, it's, it's hard not to become aware of how much we've lost. Nowhere in the, in the ancient world, nowhere, not in Homer, not in Virgil, not in any of the great poets or any of the great philosophers, do you see anybody saying the basis of our relationship to each other is, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. The basis of the ancient world is, you, this, is by, this is from G.K. Chesterton, you fought for the shrine, You fought for the altar and found that you became brave. You gave yourself something and it became holy. That's preceding Christianity. It was the fact that you loved something enough to die for it that gave it a holiness. That is, the ancient world saw that there was something really good in the human person, and when he gave his life for it, it was like a blessing. How far away that is from... I'll do this if you do this. So that's the modern world we've inherited, and we've seen it in these works. I mean, it, it seems to me it's particularly clear in the short happy life of Francis Macomber, the relationship between him and his wife, and um, we can see it in Mrs. May and Greenleaf, very striving, always wanting to get, hit, always wanting to be better than somebody else, and the grandmother who's really innocent, who, who. Who pretends that she's innocent, and hidden in that innocence is this awful, awful—I don't want to call it potential for evil, whatever you want to call it—what the outcome of what we see in that story. So <clears throat> this is the dark view under which we've all been raised. The, the characters that we're seeing in these novels aren't dark by accident; they're a product of a modern way of looking at man. The one thing, I I asked this at the end of our work on Hemingway, the one thing you can say is Hemingway loved this dignity. He thought, you know, grace under fire, that when man could maintain his dignity in the face of hardships, he was doing the best he could. It's it's almost impossible to read these stories and find anything like the supernatural virtues, faith, hope, charity. The supernatural virtues do not exist. If you enter Hemingway's world, there's, we, we do not find an example of a love fulfilled. When a couple fall in love in Hemingway world, it's it's almost a certainty that the man will die. It happens again and again and again. Something, something happens. And watch modern movies when they get close to love. Very often, it's really funny to watch. I mean, it's not funny, it's, but it's predictable. You mean, if if either you send him into Hollywood, either love gets sentimentalized and it's all sweet and nice and they don't have to deal with problems or if they deal with problems, usually the man will get killed off that's a way of showing how romantic he is either that or he has to die hard where he has to kill 500 men in order to be reunited with his wife Um, well look at that I mean, either we have to perform these unreal heroic deeds or die because there's there's not a, there's a belief that love does not exist. It it's fragile. It may be passing. A couple can have it for a moment, and but the view is that we're ultimately depraved. It it will be lost. It will be it'll turn dark. So that's our world, and these are the characters. So I just wanted to take a minute. I hope that gives some light on the characters because all of the stories that we've been in have been pretty. You know they've all been funny. Eudora Welty's stories are are very funny, but when you look at the women in the beauty shop, or a petrified man, or uh, why live at the post office? I mean, what is what else, what else? You either have to be Christ and hold your ground really firmly, or run away in terror, because the the, the characters are terrifying. Let me stop. We'll, well, I, I want to look. I want to turn to the works. Right? But any questions about any of this before we? Is this all clear? Did you all have it before? Was this just repeating stuff? No. Pretty grim world. Thank God for sacraments. <laughs> you remember when we did Moby Dick and I remember we came to that point where we where we're on land still before they went to sea and we looked at Mrs. Hussey and Father Mapple and Pelig and build it and owners and and the chapel scene and and I said look at that world or Melville's critiquing it it it's a it's a Christian world that's become moralized they live by moral law but the sacraments are gone it's a world that's losing its Christianity sadly and and Melville wasn't Catholic but he's certainly aware of something mid Being lost in the modern world so okay can we look at the stories I want to go through these very very quickly because we've already done them I want to I want to um, spend most of our time on um, um, a good man is hard to find and Greenleaf because to me they are the the most powerful of them Um, I don't think there's any need to go through the heart of the park if anybody has any questions. You remember that when Enoch gets Hazel to the museum and shows him that things fall apart. (coughs) Hazel is horrified at what he sees and runs off. We're left with an image of the woman looking at the glass and um, Hazel and it's interesting for a moment, because it's as if their image superimposed is superimposed over the pygmy, as if they share in that pygmy image, even if they're not aware of it. that that pygmy is an image of us. Hazel runs off in horror and, and well, he, why not like? <laughs> what?
2: We're all going to wind
0: up like the thing: <laughs> Yeah, we're all going to wind up dead, but I hope not shrunken. That's that. I'm that is my great hope for all of us. And remember when Enoch pursues him? It's almost like a religious fervor. He has to. He he's desperate to find a meaning in things and wants to know what's going on. Um, Hazel wants to get out of there and throws a stone at him. And the last description is this. The stone hits Enoch in the head, and he's knocked to the ground. He turned his head and saw a drop of blood on the ground. As he looked at it, he thought it widened like a little spring. He sat straight up, frozen-skinned, and put his finger in it, and very faintly he could hear his blood beating, his secret blood in the center of the city. What are we to make of that reading? Is, remember that Flannery O'Connor said... Here's her, her quote. She said that most of her characters are alike in one way, that they tend to have hard heads. She could have said hard hearts because the Old Testament, God's always tried to work on our hearts, and one of the problems with this is we've got hard hearts. So, but that's where he does his work. She said, I found that violence is strangely capable of returning my characters to reality And preparing them to accept their moment of grace. This idea that reality is something to which we must be returned at considerable cost is one which is seldom understood by the casual reader but is one which is implicit in the Christian view of the world. I think I I told you this this story of one of my students uh, when I was at Magdalen. we were doing Winter's Tale and if you remember Leontes accuses Hermione of adultery Um, He puts her in the tower. Um, 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 Paulina brings the babe to him, and he tells Paulina's husband to take the babe away to kill it. So it's his daughter. He loses her. The embassy scene comes back, you remember, and they announce the news that Leontes is a tyrant, and he refuses to hear it. And then a, a man comes out and says, your son's dead. And it's only then that he says the God Apollo's angry. And one of my and then the son's dead. Paulina will come out in a minute later and said the queen's dead. So he's lost everything. And the student's comment was, I thought it was just one, one just memorable. He said, why is it that we that we have to lose everything sometimes before we turn around? And it, because our, I mean, the answer to that is because our pride is just that deep. You know, we think we're so good. She's saying <clears throat> the violence is strangely capable of returning us to reality, preparing them for grace. Um, and that's basic to our Christian view, that if, if, if we don't learn to change, if we're not more docile, if we're not more willing, some stubbornness holds us on, and we, we reject grace. It's one of the effects of it in this ending does Enoch receive a grace here how are we to understand what happens a drop of blood on the ground as he looked at he thought it widened like a little spring he sat up straight frozen skin and put his finger in it and very faintly could hear his blood beating his secret blood in the center of the city it's a pretty powerful image What's happening? How do we understand what's going on in this moment?
3: Is that his moment of awakening? Well,
0: that's what I'm asking. You, what do you think, Tom? Well, it sounds like I it's a,
3: such a powerful image that you know, if you're bleeding, then you're feeling something.
0: And it's not just your blood, his secret blood, in the center of the city. That mm-hmm. that in this violent moment, he's linked in some way with the center of it. Apparently that he wasn't before. Did you have something, Doc? No, I don't
2: know what's going on with Nina. I think Hazel. <coughs>
0: his Sorry.
2: I
1: think Hazel received his one. Yeah. Why is the address so important?
0: Say the last know.
1: two paragraphs. Oh, that one. address that Hazel is always wanting. Yeah, well, oh, well, here. Let me tell address. you. I'm glad you asked that. that. yep address. Right.
0: Let me, actually, I was gonna, so, but you, I'm glad you pointed it out. This Why is really is good. so important? This story, yeah. I mean, did everybody hear Linda's question?
1: Why is that address so Hazel's important? looking
0: for somebody, keeps mentioning this couple. Here, I meant to say this to you, and I would have done it, but she's, she's right on here. This story is taken from one of the two novels that O'Connor wrote. The two novels were Wise Blood and The Violent Beared Away. And The Violent Beared Away, you know, is that passage from Matthew. Um, both of those are well worth reading. They're, they're, they're not long novels, they're longer, these are short stories. In Wise Blood, Hazel comes across this couple, and like Enoch, he, he feels as if something um, sacred, something important is going to happen. I haven't read it in forever, and I'm probably 20, 30 years away from those books, so I can't give you the details, but this story was taken from, if I remember correctly, Wise Blood. So you might want to just pick up, I mean, if you if enjoyed, or even if you've it's been horrified, is. Is it, even if you've been horrified, you might want to read more. No. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to give it to you as an assignment. Um, they're both really good, really good stories, really good stories. What uh, the violent Beared away is is about the baptism of a prophet, the the figure who who in a sense was raised in a Christian tradition in the South, does everything he can to rebel against it, but a number of things happen to him that bring him back and make it clear that he's got to go out into the world like an Ishmael figure. It's a really good story. It's a really good story. Doesn't end like good man is hard to (laughs) find. Okay. Revelation, I just want to quickly read the end of that. Um, Remember in the the doctor's office when Mrs. Turpin and the very pleasant-faced lady were talking, the two of them are nasty. They're always catty, trying to show how good they are, but indirectly showing that they're catty and mean-spirited and they look down on people. Um, At one point the mother starts talking about her daughter indirectly as if she weren't there. Another person, what do you do about a girl who's... and it's clear that she's talking about her daughter. Her daughter's getting angrier and angrier. She listens to the two women and finally she throws her books called Human Development. She's
3: she's she's
0: receiving a modern education. She's taking all these classes in psychology and sociology and she takes the book and throws it as Mrs. Turpin and Mrs. Turpin is horrified. It's, it's this violent moment. And she doesn't understand why she would have done that because she thinks of herself as being a good person. Um, <clears throat> to her credit, I mean, whatever else you say about her, to her credit, she's shaken and she goes through this Socratic moment. Remember, the two important stages of the Socratic moment are what's called the electus. Elenchus and aporia. The elenchus is the, the is the process of questioning that Socrates always engages his interlocutors in in dialogue, and he questions them concerning things that they think they have the right answers to, and his responses always make it clear that they don't really understand what they say they do. So it's this moment of questioning, of beginning to question yourself, and becoming puzzled. The aporia is this moment of confusion, and it's the condition for opening to wonder, to wonder about things. And remember, the condition for coming out of the cave is questioning and wondering. So long as you think you've got all the answers, you're stuck in the cave. When you begin to question um, and wonder, you begin to move out of the cave. This is her elliptic moment, she's questioning herself, she's wondering why this girl would have thrown it at her. She feels wrong that she didn't deserve it and can't make sense of it. She goes back and she tells the Negro neighbors about it and they all tell her what a wonderful woman she is. By the way, we see that repeatedly in these stories. These women are always surrounded by women who are enablers. Because they always say, they said, it, they said it to Mrs. May when Mrs. May talked about meeting with the people in town. People in town would say, oh, how good you are, how successful you are, look what you've done for yourself. And here the, the black hands tell uh, Mrs. Turpin um, that she's a good lady and she didn't deserve it. So, <laughs> So again, remember we talked about the importance of this in Sound of the Fury. Who steps out of that world to risk saying something that somebody's not going to like. Everybody stays in their comfort. It shows how much people want to be liked, but they don't want to risk having people look at them and say bad things about them. So she is questioning questioning herself, which is a good thing. She even goes home, this to me is a really touching thing. I mean, she almost endeared herself to me. I mean it's hard to like any of these characters because they're, but there are things about them I, I look at Mrs. Or, you know, Mrs. May and Greenleaf who's to me one of the worst characters and I, I looked at her and saw things in my own character. It's frightening to, it's, it's frightening to look at some of these characters sometimes. Anyway, She comes home and she asks her, cut, her husband on page 15, she says kiss me. She clearly is wounded and feel some need for affection in this moment. And that she would say, kiss me, to me is stunning. So however much we don't, I mean, there's, um, there's lots to not like about these figures. This to me was a really human touch on on O'Connor's part. Um, She gets angrier and angrier until finally, she's by herself on page 18 at the bottom. She reaches a pitch of anger. Why me, she rumbled. It's no trash around here, black or white, that I haven't given to and break my back to the book. Look at all the good I've done in the world. How often do we hear that? Look how good I am. Look at the good I've done. Mrs. May says the same thing. She appeared to the right-sized woman to command the the arena before her. How am I a hog, she demanded. Exactly how am I like them? Because it's been her position in life that she's better than other people. To be compared to them is a humiliation. She's always thought she was better in her prime. How exactly how am I like them? And she jabbed the stream of water at the She's gonna take it out of the water, too. <laughs> there was plenty of trash there. It didn't have to be me. If you like trash better, go get some, go get yourself some trash. You, this is a God. Look how look how been let's say, look how good I've been. <laughs> if, you want some, if you want some trash better, go get yourself some trash. To, you could have made me trash. Or a nigger. I mean, her, she's, what she's doing is just revealing herself. You know that, So while she's in the office, she presents herself as being this very social, socially respectable woman. So does the other woman. The daughter is a clear giveaway. There's problems here that neither woman wants to see. Or a nigger. If trash is what you wanted, why didn't you make me trash? She shook her fist with a hose in it, and a watery snake appeared momently in the air. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the language here is, is wonderfully telling. I could quit working and take it easy and be filthy, she growled. Lounge about on the s- sidewalks all day, drinking root beer, dip snuff and spit in every puddle and have it all over my face. I could be nasty. Is there any greater irony than in, in that? I could, as if she isn't the most nasty person in the world anyway. She just doesn't see it. Oh, you could have made me a nigger. It's too late for me to be a nigger, she said with deep sarcasm. But I could act like one, lay down in the middle of the road and stop traffic, roll on the ground. (laughs) At that moment, she's, um, go on in the next bar, down a few lines. Go on, she yelled, call me a hog, call me a hog again from hell. Call me a warthog from hell. Put that bottom rail on top. Remember, because in her way of viewing the world, everything is by class. You can change it, but it's not going to make any difference. She's always seen herself as better. So even though we broke from England to get rid of class distinctions, they're not gone. They're everywhere in our culture.
3: But does she think that she's using this language is so raw about, you know, about this racist southerner's attitude toward black people? Mm You know, they, you know. Her contempt for that. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it's not just the black people,
2: though. Tom, it's contempt for
3: the white uh, trash. Oh, yeah. Oh, white trash. Sure. Yeah. Okay, I see what you're saying. <laughs> Whenever she says it at one point, like you have to be a southerner to say it this way. <laughs> it's so natural. <laughs> and It's like who could say this? You have you're to in be New York. I mean, he <laughs> put in voices something that's in the yeah, right, of the, right, the South right, you know.
0: right. Remember that she said she'd, she'd rather be a nigger than white trash because in her mind, white trash was in some ways worse. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. But here, she said, here. Cause let me say, um, call me a warthog from hell, put the bottom rail on top. There'll still be a top and a bottom. Because in her mind, you, these are, this is Calvin. There are the saved and the damned. There are people who are fixed. There's got to be these classes. That's from Calvin. That's, that's at the root we've seen this. this. That's at the root when everybody, when the grandmother says "Why well, you're not a commoner, you've got good blood in you, or you've got bad blood. It's assumed that those things are determinative. They are fixed. That idea of predestination is Calvin's. Those things are fixed. Some people are safe, some are damned. A gar- so a garbled echoed returned her. A final surge of fury shook and she roared. Who do you think you are? And remember, the voice goes out against the mountain, comes back. (laughs) Who do I I think we're supposed to assume it changes its inflection? It's and it it returns. Who do you think you are? (laughs) Um, Then she sees the truck coming. Her husband pulling into the. At the bottom of nineteen, she has a revelation. Then like a monumental statue coming to life, she bent her head slowly and gazed as through a very heart of mystery down into the pig parlor of the hogs. They'd settled all in one corner around the old sow who, grunt, who was grunting softly. A red glow suffused them. They appeared to pant with secret life. In this moment, the sows are beautiful. They're not ugly creatures. There's a red glow emanating from them. There was only a purple streak in the sky, cutting through a field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into the descending dusk. She raised her hands from the side of the pen in a gesture, hieratic and profound. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She begins to have this vision of the souls um, ascending to heaven. She's always thought of herself as being at the head and the blacks and the white trash and the prostitutes. I mean, this is so out of the Bible. When Christ called everybody and he said the the prostitutes and the lame and the would all be first and that whatever. Isn't it in that something? I can't remember the passage. Yeah. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself, and Claude has always had a little bit of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. These are the respectable people. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. She lowered her hands and gripped the rail of the hog pen, her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead. In a moment the vision faded, but she remained where she was, immobile. At length she got down and turned off the faucet and made her slow way on the darkening path to the house. In the woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up, but what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting hallelujah. How are we to understand this ending with her? A conversion? Or the mystical experience? Wouldn't you say? This is one of the few story This is one of the few stories in which she actually makes clear the grace was received. She and it's interesting that she went through this questioning, this this electic moment. You know, of being puzzled and and then getting really angry and shouting, "Who do you think you are?" Only to get that sentence back at her. And
2: I have to tell you, Bob. When I was reading this, as I got to the end, I thought she's going to fall into that pig pen that <laughs>
0: <kid> <laughs> <laughs> I did. I really having read about some of these
2: others, I thought she's yes, yes, <laughs> had the same feeling. She's in her? the pig pen. Yeah, that That's she falls into the pig pen and they.
0: You and Linda have got to stay apart for a while here.
1: <laughs> what, what is all the page six go, is where I, I first marked it all. Cool. I, I'm not familiar with hogs and pigs and what's a pig parlor. It's raising them on concrete. But, and she says they're cleaner than some children I've seen. You know, our well, hogs not, are not dirty. dirt. Right, they're not mud. So that they, they can be hosed down. Like and the prodigal son who was with the pigs. In
0: the well, country. it's also her, I mean, isn't the point of it is it's, it's, it's her, go ahead. It's used
1: throughout, that metaphor.
0: Yeah, and it's a good one. What, well, apply it to her as a character in her social standing.
1: She's on concrete, she's not in dirt. She thinks she is, she's not dirty.
0: And one of the signs of her being above other people is that her hogs are so clean. Clean, and they're on like, You know, she's,
1: that's oh. remember,
0: because she keeps saying, Make me a nigger! I'll grovel in the street and roll around. I mean, it's a sort of hog ah, image. She just did. because she to her, her this is amazing, and Mrs. May will show the same thing. Over and over and over again, these characters keep showing that they assume if they work hard enough, they'll get into heaven. All of Paul's letters fly right in the face of that. You 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 can't earn heaven. It's a grace. And, and what they keep showing is how superior they are and, and I, I mean, you're good to point that out, then because it's a wonderful image that reflects back on her, you know, her attitude towards the blacks and white trash and her own hogs. Mrs. May does the same thing with, um, Green, with Greenleaf. She says, my sons are better than yours. It's her way, and what we learn from the story is they are so much worse, so much worse. This is one of the, I mean, I, it's, it's a, it seems to me it's an enjoyable story because you, you see the grace taken at the end. I mean, that, that, that a, a visible good, a recognizable good came out of this when some of the other stories leave us wondering exactly how we're supposed to read the ending. Let's, let's turn to Greenleaf and The Good Man is Hard to Follow. I'm good. I want to just do the same thing with Greenleaf. It's, um, Mrs. May has been working this farm for years on her own. She prides herself on being a successful woman. She sees herself as, like Mrs. Turpin, she sees herself as being better than other women because of what she's accomplished. And the evidence of that is that her sons, she does everything she can to put Mr. Greenleaf down because he's a hired hand. He's beneath her. What frustrates her is is her recognition at some point that she's actually subservient to him. Mm -hmm. Um, That he will take control of all of this so she'll lose it all. So the thought that everything that she's accomplished will be turned over to this inferior person um, really angers her, frustrates her. Um, You know that it begins with a bull snipping to the garden and and it leads her to find out why the bull is there and she ends up finally at the Greenleaf farm. Um, she learns that the bull belonged to the boys and she went there to tell them to, that she was going to have their father kill the bull. When she gets to the farm she sees how their milk farm is far superior to her own. And there's a moment of illumination when the sun shines in it and she won't accept the vision, she won't mm-hmm. accept the sign, and she goes home troubled. She doesn't do what Mrs. Turpin does, I mean she does do this questioning. She convinces herself again, again, excuse me, again that she's right, she doesn't know how to answer. What we see her do at that time, at that point, is become more determined that the bull will be killed. So the next day she gets Greenleaf um, to go with her to the field and commands him to chase the bull out of the field and kill him. And when he gets out of the car to do that she has that remark about, she makes that remark about um, your sons are the ones who made you do this. Everything she does she justifies. There's not a thing. Her whole way of looking at the world is to justify. Her sons fight, the Greenleaf sons don't. She has evidence everywhere that there's something wrong and it doesn't lead her to question what she's doing anywhere. So it comes down to the end when she um, is there in the car, Mr. Greenleaf has chased the bull into the woods and she's expecting to hear a a rifle report and and have the satisfaction of having gotten rid of this bull. Um, She lays her head back on the hood of the car sitting on the fender and her eyes closed. She has a number of dreams, and in the dreams, um, she's given visions of something that should tell her, but like other things, she refuses to look at them. Two things are really important before we look at this ending, that they're part of the dreams and the setting and the landscape. Remember in her dreams, and even in real life when she wakes up, She keeps looking at the sun, the light of the sun, as if it's an intrusion on her property. And she keeps seeing things in terms of a circle around her and somebody entering the circle, Mr. Greenleaf or even the sun. One of her dreams, she's glad to see the sun go down behind the tree line because it assures her that the sun won't intrude on her property. So in both of those images, this is really important, both of these images of the sun and the circle we have images of her self-sufficiency. That she, that circle, I think, is an image of her self-sufficiency. She doesn't need anybody, she doesn't want anybody, she doesn't need help, and she rejects grace. She don't want, she don't want anybody coming into that circle. <coughs> she doesn't want the sunlight penetrating. And everything she does, she tries to protect her sense of her own self-sufficiency. She does not need anybody. And she's doing everything she can to keep this bull from intruding in that circle in her property. This is, it, it, this, this is an amazing story. That circle, if you go back to Calypso and Circe, remember the Odyssey, the possessiveness of something in the feminine. She's doing all she can to hold on to this, to say, it's mine. I don't want anything coming in on it. Not the bull, not the sun, not Mr. Greenleaf. All of them are threats to everything that she's accomplished. At the very end, she's there in the middle of this pasture <clears throat> and um, she looks up for a moment thinking that it's green leaf coming from the woods, but it turns out to be the bull on the very last page 16. She looked back and saw that the bull, his head lowered, was racing toward her. She remained perfectly still, not in fright, but in a freezing unbelief. She stared at the violent black streak bounding towards her. she had no sense of distance, as if she could not decide at once what his intention was. And the bull had buried his head in her lap like a wild, tormented lover. Before her expression changed, one of his horns sank until it pierced her heart, and the other curved around her side and held her in an unbreakable grip. I wish he'd used embrace. <laughs> well, truly, I mean, the tormented lover. I mean, this is an image of a lover's embrace in some sense. Out
3: the, um, of Just, did you say that? I passed
0: out that. Um,
2: honor yeah.
0: The, one of the handouts you got. Is taken from Ovid which would have been the source for this story. It's Ovid's story of Zeus's um, kidnapping of Europa and vanquishing, raping her. So there's a mythic aspect to this that that O'Connor was aware of and she clearly is trying to bring that to the story. She continued to stare straight ahead but the entire scene in front of her changed. The tree line Remember, that tree line defines her property. She doesn't want the sun intruding or anybody coming in. She continued to stare straight ahead. The tree line was a dark wound in a world that was nothing but sky. The tree line's gone. In place of it is a wound. She's immediately in contact with the sky now. And she had the look of a person whose sight has been suddenly restored, but who finds the light unbearable. Light has been offered in this moment. Mr. Greenleaf was running towards her. Um, he shot the bull four times through the eye. Not heard the sh- she did not hear the shot, but she felt the quake of the huge body as it sank, pulling her forward on its head so that she seemed, when Mr. Greenleaf reached her, to be bent over whispering some last discovery into the animal's ear. <coughs> okay, what do we make of this? Did you have something, Noah's?
2: No, it was just her typical grotesque
0: ending. (laughs) (laughs) What do you guys make of this? Does she... I thought all be Dick,
3: trying to kill evil.
0: Oh, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is the grace being offered in the violence, and does she receive it?
1: Is mm-hmm. she funny? She doesn't receive it. Why do you think, Linda? Because you said so. <laughs> Where? <laughs> <laughs> because she found the light unbearable. I think that was it. Yes, light unbearable. It was too much for her. She couldn't accept it because of her pride. She needs no one.
0: Reach to be bent over, whispering some last last discovery into the animal's ear. What could that be?
3: Confession.
0: Tom, in your mind, does she receive grace or not?
3: I think in that moment she's saying something that is uh, we don't know what it is, but I think it's it's something about. I mean, I love that idea about the unbearable light. Yeah. Uh, who was it that said, that said uh, all human evil and problems can reduce the man's inability to, to carry the light? Some poet or Pascal? Or you Was it Pascal? Time? Anyway. All man's problems stem from his inability to sit alone in a room. Oh, room. That's room. But this thing is about light. And so this whole thing, that, that light, right, <coughs> That's a metaphor on one hand, um, but is she receiving the light? That's my
0: question, yeah. What do you think?
3: I'm going to try to be hopeful here. (laughs) You know, it's really sad that uh, this animal was her nemesis. as Mm -hmm. And so it's like, does she get the lesson? And it's like she hated this thing and I could control it
0: and yes. send
3: somebody else yes. to heal it and yes. Then yes. Then it comes back yes. it's right in her face. I said, what?
0: So the, so the conclusion for you is, does she receive the grace or not?
3: <laughs> Come on, it's
0: got to be a yes or no. Yes. No waffling. Yes. Yes. Yes? yes. yes? yes. I don't
2: know. I, the, the, the image is that, that she's it. been impaled and when the bull falls, she falls with it. Mm-hmm. She's still attached to mm-hmm. it and she's whispering something to it. Mm-hmm. So, I don't think she does. Yeah. I think that she's hooked to that, rather, and she's, and the, the light is more than she can take. And this is what she knows, and she's staying with it. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's,
3: that's kind of how I felt, too, when I, you when I, when I, like she's just taking on with what she's always done, you know, what was needed, I do all this good, and
0: so in the end, that's how she ends. Whispering some last discovery. That word is an important one, discovery. <laughs> By the way, it's, it's important in this sense, she's not open to discoveries. I mean, she has everything. On, I thought Tom's What? I, I want to hold on. I've got to bring this up before we conclude on this. What's the difference between, um, Mrs. May and her sons and Mr. Greenleaf and his sons, the two families. (coughs) I think we're supposed to assume that the Greenleaf family is Catholic. Greenleaf married his wife and met in France during the war, it's a Catholic country. The children go to a convent school. The mother is deeply religious, she prays, you know, she buries those prayers, she goes, it's a horrifying thing to Mrs. May because Mrs. May wants to always seem sufficient, capable. The idea of a woman praying down on her knees is humiliating to her. One of the differences between the family, just to get this out, because we've got I've got to be careful of time now, is that the green Mrs. May does everything she can to dominate, to control everything that happens in her life. You suffer evil before you do evil to another person. Greenleaf is gonna go kill that bull even though he doesn't want to. He has to suffer her constantly before he does some wrong. If you put the two families next to each other, the May family does nothing but strive to master. That in itself is modern. The conquest of nature, if nature is depraved, your answer to it is to get control of it. I mean that's been the whole Protestant ethic since the 16th century. The Greenleaf family is in tune with nature. They're not pressing. Anywhere. The kids, they don't fight. They're at peace with each other. There's no fighting there. When you enter into the, the um, May household, the kids are, I mean, they're knocking over the table you read. It. I mean they're just, they can't get along at all. Seems to me one of the one of the issues here is that one family is in tune with nature. They're in two, They're not trying to rise above it to be better. May can do nothing without trying to be better than somebody else to get control of it. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to stand with Tom on this one. I, it's hard to say. We don't know conclusively. But for me, there's every indication that, that a grace has been received. We don't know for sure, but let me give it... She had the look of a person whose sight has been suddenly restored but who finds a light unbearable. If you've been blind all your life and suddenly you're, let's say you're blind, and you come out into the light, what's your experience of it going to be in that moment? Unbearable. It doesn't mean you reject it, it just means that light, that nothing's prepared you for that moment when it comes. So I don't see any rejection there. To me, that's exactly what it would be. If you came out of the cave, into the sunlight. When any of us have those moments of revelation aren't they generally painful and hard to accept? So for me there's, there's no evidence that she doesn't and there's enough evidence to suggest that something does The lover-like embrace like a wild, tormented lover, the, the bull piercing, piercing her heart. Everything about what's going on in this moment suggests the grace of love, something violating her space, shattering it. Remember, the tree line has protected her, the circle's protected her. Those things are gone. They're violated. The, what's in place of the tree line is a wound. The circle's been crossed. That whole self-protective way of dealing with the world is gone. What's happening now, she's in this embrace. I mean, she is fixed. They're, they're, um, and, wait, wait, hold on. Just And, and she's whispering. We don't seeming to whisper some last discovery into the animal's ear. She's not a woman to do that, to discover and whisper. She wanted that bull off of her property. She wanted to kill it. Something's happening here. And it's not that we, I don't know that we can be definitive, but it just seems to me that there's enough indications (coughs) to suggest that self-protective world has been shattered. Something's happening. This may be a moment of communion, some discovery. You
3: could say, uh, like like, like a wild, tormented lover, God's love pierces through to her core, Right. and all her defenses of uh, keeping control are gone. gone. So it's like, uh, you know, you could either have a lightning moment or a psychotic episode. (laughs)
0: yeah and I keep wanting to know where are you on which of those where do you fall down
1: (laughs) Doc did you have something well I I think Debbie's um, insight about
2: the bull impales her I mean it it would be possible to have her killed by the bull by having him toss her correct Um, but he doesn't he impales her and goes through her heart and she does fall with With him. him but somebody said the bull is her nemesis that's in her mind if you go back to the beginning, when he's first, when she first sees him
0: in the garden at night, from that wreath of, um, It's body, Christ-like. And falls down on his head like a glory crown. I, I mean, oh. I think, right. I right. think
2: the bull is a Christ figure, and, and he does pierce her, and she does stays with him. With him. Yeah.
1: I'm convinced.
0: Sorry. Oh, good. Good, you too. Oh. There's hope. There's hope even for you.
1: Then they change for her essence, so she's not Calvinistic because Calvin says you can't change a person's right. essence.
0: She's so Yes. If that
1: all happened to her and she's enlightened and awakened. Well, I, it, it's her a, essence has been changed. It's a
0: it's a crucifying moment. You know what I mean? Well, it's a death be. moment, but there's reason to believe that that some mm-hmm. transcendent love has penetrate and it only happens through violence because the resistance is so great but let's do quickly a good man is hard to find because we're out of time are you okay for a few more minutes
3: Yeah.
0: you guys are good sometimes <laughs> um... just quickly to recount a couple of things the, the, grand, the, the women that were dealing with God, either I'm gonna be run out of this church and tarred and feathered by, by a community of women, or my wife is giving me looks right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the grandmother belongs in this group of women that we believe in, very innocent, like she does nothing, very manipulative. She, she gets her son to turn off the road, she hides the cat, both of which are gonna lead so everybody's undoing mm-hmm. so everything she does she does in innocence um, but him remember what Flannery O'Connor said too she said her words um, she, she she was no sentimentalist you okay
3: Oh,
0: you have a Thank you. Thank you sir. Mm. Damn, where is this? Oh, she says good fiction, or at least grotesque, is a counter to sentimentality and innocence. Wow. Thomas Mann said that the grotesque is the true anti bourgeois style. Both of them are saying that the grotesque is necessary because the bourgeois bourgeois style, the modern, our attempt to make a utopian, comfortable world is to make everything seem okay, to be innocent, to act like we're innocent. Her comment is that innocence will always, by natural law, become its opposite. That underneath this innocence is a hidden violence. It will produce it. And we've seen that with every one of the characters, and in a major way, it seems to me, on the ground because everything she does is in innocence. Now it's important to see this and hold on to it because at the end we've got the grandmother in her innocence and a man who's, who is a misfit who in some ways is criminal, the two of them. So in some ways they're like mere reverse images of each other. Just hold on to that for a second when we, when we get there, okay? <coughs> page 9 at the top. She keeps telling the misfit at this point to pray and trying to convince him that he's a good man. <laughs> she obviously is frightened for her life at this point and she's doing everything she can to, to to try to get out of this predicament which she's largely responsible for getting them into. The misfit tells the men to take the father and the son off. You know, this This is what gets horrifying, and I'm sure it's, I'm guessing it's what yeah, it's was so upsetting the letter, because it's, I mean, it's a terrible thing. That you, we know the father and son go off, and we hear these shots, and they're gone. Um, come back this instant, the mother shrilled, but they disappeared into the woods. This is top of page nine. Baby boy, the grandmother called in a tragic voice, but she found she was looking at the misfits squatting on the ground. I just know you're a good man, she said desperately. You're not a bit common. No, I ain't a good man, the misfit said after a second. Ah, as if he had considered her statement carefully. But I ain't the worst in the world, neither. My daddy said I was a different breed of dog from the brothers and sisters. You know, daddy said, it's some that can live their whole life without asking about it, and it's others, has to know why it is. This boy is one of the ladders. One of the things we can say... Definitely about him is that he is a seeker. He's not like other people. He wants to know. He was that way from his beginning His father saw this. She wants to know um, what he did um, to get put in jail at the top of ten. Um, he said he was buried alive. She said that's when you should have started to pray. What did you do to get Sent to the penitentiary the first time. Turn to the right, it was a wall, the misfit said. Turn to the left, it was a wall. Look up, it was a ceiling. Look down, it was a floor. I forgot what I'd done, lady. I sit there and sat there trying to remember what it was I'd done, and I recalled it to this day. Once in a while, I would think it was coming to me, but it never came. I want to start for a second. Something happened the other day on TV. I was watching Fox News. It stunned me, because what... I, can't, I really wanted to hold on to it and I can't go back to it. They were making the point that somebody had been in jail, somebody had done something and they, and they couldn't remember what because they didn't have the papers on him. And they made it clear it was only because they had the papers on him that they could prove something. And I thought, what an indictment of the modern penal system because it's become so bureaucratic that you lose sense of a person and what gets substituted for, is this paperwork? Now think about the problems we're having with immigrants with documentation and documents that get lost and they become evidence that somebody's been incompetent about doing something because they didn't have the documents. How important, I mean this is stunning to me, how important document doc, how much more important documents are than the nature of a person or a crime. I mean she's saying the misfit cannot go back and recover Remember Dante, too, when he went into hell, I remember, remember he was unconscious because none of us ever remembers very clearly our first sins because they, they, they're always committed before we come, be, begin to be conscious. We're already in a state of sin before um, we become conscious of the things. I remember the first conscious thing I did was steal a knife in a store. But I, I, I recognize that knowing there had to be things before that moment that I didn't. He says he can't remember. She tries to give him answers, and and he says none of them are right. And then she says, if you just pray, Jesus will help you. He keeps saying that. She keeps saying it again and again. Um, going over to page 11. She's pushing Christ at him, and he says yes and the misfit said as if he agreed. Jesus wrote everything off balance. It was the same case with him as with me except he, it was the same case with him as with me. Because remember they put Christ before Pilate and he could say nothing because for him to say anything would have made the travesty even worse because he was guiltless. He was innocent except he hadn't committed any crime and they they could prove I would committed one because they had the papers on me. Of course, he said, they never showed me my papers. That's why I signed myself now. I said, long ago, you get a signature and sign everything you do and keep a copy of it. Then you'll know what you've done and you can hold the crime to the punishment see. Do they match in the end and you have something to prove you ain't been treated right? Um, I think I passed over the line. It was maybe earlier. Remember he said when they were trying to determine what the cause, of what his crime was, he said that the people of the penitentiary said it's because you killed your father. Mm-hmm. That's an edible reading of a crime. What the, what the guy is saying is what explains this all is this edible impulse. So the misfit is a modern... Stop and think about this. For the misfit, there's a modern... If Freud's right, is there any one of us who shouldn't be in jail? What's at the root of our souls is this longing to kill our father, and ultimately, i.e., God. Um, So there's this evil in us. The only thing that's protecting us is what he called the superego, the sense of social awareness that we we accommodate to a social world, because otherwise we're left with these dark forces. Um, Can anybody identify an injustice for a human being in a circumstance like this? What are, what are the ultimate causes of the wrongs we commit? What was his wrong? He doesn't know. Yeah. He can't know. And the... And the um, I forgot that line. The? the way he says the Father... The, the I
3: was looking for that, but I didn't see
0: it. Oh, it's, um, it's either on page 9 or 11. Anyway. 14? Here, <clears throat> I, let me finish here. My daddy died. Um, There were two more pistol reports and the grandmother raised her head as if a parched old turkey hen crying for water and called Bailey boy Bailey as if her heart would break. Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead, the misfit continued. He shouldn't have done it. He thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left. The best way you can by killing somebody or burning. Stop and think about this for a second. If Christ came, I mean, the message is so right here. If Christ came and what he said is true, then there's nothing for us to do but give up our life. If he's not, and this is the view of the modern man, then there's no reason not to kill. Because there's no nature, there's no law. And what does an injustice mean for anybody living in that? Mind you, anyway, the misfit is a perfect image, and it's called a misfit. He's a perfect image of modern man. He's like the pygmy, but he's alive and got a gun. It's What's it?
3: that? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just thinking of that that line. No, uh, no pleasures, but meanness it takes pleasure in meanness. No pleasure but meanness. Uh, burning down houses. Ruins.
0: Some other meanness I'm Yeah. Go down. I'm gonna, let me just finish this quickly. Um, after the line, Tom's quoting, no pleasure but meanness, he said, and his voice became almost a snarl. Maybe he didn't raise the dead, the old. This is that moment when, even though she's been pressing, she herself questions him. It's as if she's just been living this convention about Christ. I wasn't there so I can't say he didn't, the misfit said. I wish I had been there. He said, it ain't right I wasn't there because if I'd been there I would have known. Here's another modern presumption. The only basis of our experience, or the only basis of knowledge is our own personal private experience of it. If that's true, there's no reason to have faith. Because we'll only believe what we've experienced. It's very modern too. By the way, it's one of the reasons moderns, modern poets, writers want to experience everything because they feel that if they, if they haven't experienced it, they can't write about it. So they have to experience evil to write about it. He It not right I wasn't there because if I'd been there I would have known. Listen lady, if I'd been there I would have known and I wouldn't be like I am now. His voice seemed to crack. It's almost as if he wishes it were otherwise. That if he had been back there to see it he wouldn't be the person. So there's something in him that's not at ease with who he is. I wouldn't be like I am now. His voice seemed about to crack and the grandmother heard head cleared for an instant. She saw the man's face twisted close to her own as if you were going to cry. And she murmured, why? You're one of my babies. You're one of my own children. She reached out he takes his pistol and shoots her three times. Um, the the story ends with the, with the misfit telling his henchman to, to take her off. He says, take her off and throw her where you've thrown the others. That, to me, is a Holocaust line.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, imagine the German soldiers just taking bodies and pitching them. Take her off and throw her where you throw the others. She was a talker, wasn't she, Bobby Lee said, sliding down a ditch with a yodel. She would have been a good woman, the misfit said. If it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life, some fun, Bobby Lee said. Shut up, Bobby Lee, the misfit said. It's no real pleasure in life. He just got through saying the only pleasure would be if you didn't follow Christ. So there's two questions to ask. Does the grandmother receive grace in this moment? And does the misfit, does something happen to the two of them? How do we understand what happens here with these... Figures. We have to wind this up pretty directly because I've been trying to be good about time and today. What do you guys think? Does well, the does when, the grandmother When re-
3: says, it's when, like she says you're my sons or my babies, yeah. it's like she sees there's no difference between her and him, or she claims this uh, uh, bond with him that she would, you know, that would be a real change for her, whether I
0: don't know if you could. Let me let me try to let me try to flesh this out to make this doc wait on wait a second, can you? Because i I'd be glad if you were in this. She's been innocent all her life. She's been the kind of woman that'd say about her son, oh my baby. and He's oh, probably okay. a third. Some women do that. Um, she looks at the at the misfit and says, why, sorry where you, why, you're one of my babies, You're one of my own children. That's the sort of I, that's the sort of language I can hear her using on her son, my baby. So we can look at her looking at the misfit and seeing some um, some shared quality, something that she identifies with him that that he has in common with her own children so that what she's doing I remember when Susanna and I went home last week at at night Doc was saying that she was being manipulative and taking control and so she's either being innocent and saying why you're one of my babies you're one of my own children the way she would of her own children so she's manipulative and now remember she just heard the second gunshot she just lost the rest of her family moments before she heard the shots and she knew she lost her son and her grandson now she knows she's lost her mother, or her, the wife, and the baby, and the daughter, the, or the, the, um, the grandchild, the girl, granddaughter. She goes to her knees. She, she's shaking right now. Okay? I mean, she's heard those gunshots, and clearly they just went to her heart. She, they shattered something. She shakes, she goes to the ground. So when she says, well, you're one of my babies, you're one of my own children, she's either being manipulative and using the language that she would have with her own children, the way she's been doing all along, or she sees some affinity with him that she's not seen before and made a place for evil that she's never made in her life. Because in her own mind, everything is innocent, sweet, and nice. So the question is, which is it? Is that clear? Mm-hmm. She's got to be doing one or the other. <clears throat> mm. Doc, you go ahead if you. Uh, did, did you want to comment, that No, I think
3: so. <laughs> <laughs> but she reached up and touched him, so it was like something you bridge the uh, between darkness and light she she was able to um, see I mean when you make that split between the two then them you feed the evil by keeping the innocence now she embraces the
0: him but touches it anyway. One of the parishioners last week comment um, was when she reaches out to touch him, it's an expression of love. And one of the other parishioners said, see, I saw it very differently. I thought it was going you to know, manipulate the touching. And it's really interesting to me because these comments, our interpretations almost say more about, I think, us than it. Because it can't be both. It you know, they they, um, has to be one or the other
1: the very last line comment. It's no real pleasure in life. Mm-hmm. You can't tell me he received light and grace. He's a murderer.
0: Well, that's, see, because my, the reason I'm asking that question is is that we know from earlier lines that he said, there's, if you don't follow this Christ, then there's no reason not to kill. But um, it seems, I may be misreading it, I don't think, it seems to me that what happened with the grandmother affects him so that he's left when she says well, you're, one you're one of my own you're one of my babies you're one of my own children there's two ways either she's being manipulative and touching to get control and stay in that innocent world or her world is shattered and she's seeing something she's never seen before by seeing something evil and the misfit that opens her world So there's two ways. And on his part, the same thing. He's a killer. When she says, why you were on my own, is he affected by it so that now it's no real pleasure in life? I mean, he says she should have been shot every day to get her out of this innocence. But here at the end, he says there's no real pleasure. Is his life been changed by what happens with the grandmother? We've got two figures who are almost mere opposite Innocence and evil, how do we understand what happens in this violent moment? Did, did you have? I, I,
2: I think that's absolutely right. I think, I think he um, is affected by her just by the fact that he had somebody else take the other people off and shoot them. And oh. he recoils and he shoots it three times. Um, and, and so he, I think he was impacted by her. And he realized, I think for the first time probably, that that um, she represented something that he may have really wanted but couldn't have or didn't have. And so and it and it appored him because he it it changed him. Or it was changing him. John. And so he wanted to get rid of it because it went counter to John. whatever his
0: life experience of death. Yeah, that, that's pretty close to my, and the question, I think we're left, remember Christ's um, encounter with the lawyer, when the lawyer says, what do you have to do? And then Christ says, you, you know, you do this, this, and then give up to the poor, finally give up, and the mm-hmm. lawyer went away sad. Mm-hmm. We don't know what happens, but it's it seems to me it's it's impossible to read that any other way than to say, that lawyer will never be the same again. Even if he doesn't give up all of his stuff, he carries Christ with him. That's going to be a burden. It's going to be a wound he carries. It seems to me that, that or at least that's the way I read this ending for both of them, that both of them are wounded now. And even the misfit, who clearly knows Christ, either give him up or, you know, or kill him. Because there's not going to be any pleasure for him in life anymore. Um, so once again we have one of these moments in violence where grace is offered, and there's no definitive answer. But it's, but given the way she set it up, it's to me it's like the lawyer, Christ meeting that lawyer when the lawyer goes where he said that. Something happened in that moment that, that changed the way.
2: Well, I, I think even the line where where she's, where um, he says. Um, you know, she would have been a good woman, except you'd have to kill her every minute of her life. It's you had to one, shoot her every day. Shoot her every day, yeah. Because she is reflecting, that woman reflects to him what he should be and not what he is. And so you have to constantly be pushing it aside. Yeah. Maybe no.
0: So... <laughs> mm. We're going to leave Flannery O'Connor. I know some of you are going to be really sad.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have a box of Kleenex right
2: here. I want to
0: know. Didn't you guys enjoy it? I, mean, isn't, I she that didn't, was a
1: great story.
2: I They're all. It's
0: horrific. Yes. But it's a great story. Yeah. I mean, she, she really forces us. I think it's like, for me, it's like Dante's Hell. By the way, grotesque comedy is important. Remember what these writers said. Because grotesque comedy shows how vast the irony is between the way we see ourselves and the way we really are. If you get into bourgeois comedy, that gap narrows. Everything's okay, it's sweet, it's sentimental. Grotesque comedy is infernal comedy. It's grotesque because it shows just how vast the differences are between the way we'd like to see ourselves and the way we are. That, that's how out of touch with some things in ourselves we are. Dante's Hell, remember, if you remember it, those, it's, it's impossible to read it without getting shaken up because you see just how grotesque sin is. Every one of these moments, the grotesque is that meeting between evil and good. There's no way that meeting can be anything other than grotesque. It disfigures. There's a violence implicit in it. That's at the center of our belief. So it seems to me it's really important to read people like Flannery O'Connor in our day. It's, it's, it's like an antidote to the bourgeois world we live in.
1: She has a great command of language, mm-hmm. her similes, yeah. suppose, her Yes,
0: words. yes, yes, yes.
1: Really good.
0: Okay, two stories and we're done with the short stories next week.